Dark is an editor, a programming language, and an infrastructure compiler in one. And our goal is making it super, super simple to build backends in the cloud. You see all these companies where the first thing they do is they set up their like Kubernetes-based microservice before they've written a single line of code. And it's like, what are you doing? The needs of an early customer, like how reliable or polished you need to be for that first customer, is often like two orders of magnitude lower than people expect. There's this idea of like hackathon is a thing where you go and you build this app in a weekend. And we're actually getting to the stage now where people aren't writing anything in hackathons because it's just too much work to build an application. Welcome to High Leverage, a series of conversations about scaling modern software teams through better tooling and processes. I'm your host, Joe Ruscio, a general partner here at Heavybit. High Leverage is brought to you by Heavybit, a program that helps companies building cloud infrastructure, developer tools, and APIs take their products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you'd like to suggest a guest or topic for this show, let us know on Twitter, at Heavybit. All right, everybody, welcome back. We're really, really excited to be joined by our guest today, Paul Bigger who is a Heavybit alumnus, a founder of a Heavybit company, one we're super proud of, CircleCI. If you uh, hopefully are doing testing, then they're probably at the, the top of your list for continuous integration. Is also a host of a popular podcast on the Heavybit network, more popular than this one, in fact, although I'm, I'm, I'm gunning for it, to be continuous, which is great. Paul and uh, Edith from Launch Darkly have a great podcast. And last but not least, uh, has a new thing going on. So is the CTO and co-founder of Dark, which is super descriptive. So we'll get into that more, but is at uh, darkling.com, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, Paul, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, the pleasure is all ours. So we uh, have a couple things we want to talk about today. You know, this podcast is about helping you know, modern software teams get better, get more productive, get more done with fewer people, have fewer failures, et cetera, et cetera. And so one of the things, especially now that you know, you've built multiple companies, mm-hmm. um, especially companies with like actually really challenging uh, infrastructure things, right? right like right. A, a continuous integration play is actually in the details. I mean, yeah, sound- I mean we, we built a platform as a service essentially for right. CI. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean it sounds run tests, right? But there's this is at scale like a big thing. And and so yeah, I mean, what kind of learnings going from I guess quote unquote garage mm-hmm. to uh, you know seed stage to A to bigger one of the things I've always found fascinating, I'd love to get your take, is, is having gone through that myself, is that the things that work really, really well at one stage are the best thing for one of those stages yeah. break just in horrific oh, ways at the next one. Yeah. And you kind of have to redo it, right? Right. I mean, there's the standard thing of like each inflection point, you're going to need a different set of tooling to last you for the next 10x scaling. Mm-hmm. But I think people often don't scale that down and think about you know when I have zero customers or one customer or the first ten customers, can I do something that's that's even cheaper than you often do? Yeah, it's sort of like the inverse is true as well. Yeah, right? ex- exactly. So like you see all these companies where the first thing they do is they set up their like Kubernetes-based microservice before they've written a single line of code, and it's like, what what are you doing? Yeah, well, it's not required to get things going. Right, right. So one of the things that we, we do with Dark is we look at how people write new pieces of software. And a lot of people look to like hackathons and you know, the, the, there's this idea of like a hackathon is a thing where you go and you, you know, write code, you build this app in a weekend. And we're actually getting to the stage now where people aren't writing anything in hackathons because it's just too much work to build an application. Right, right. Particularly the Rails community, right? Mm-hmm. If you it's people who are there who are long term bemoan what used to be when the beauty there's like, hey, you can get an app up and running right, in right. like five minutes. 
now it's like, well, there's 30 JavaScript frameworks you have yep. to pick from, and yeah, you got to get npm installed, and you got to get right. this other N- thing. none of them work together, and you, right. you have to get your webpack thing set up, and you have to get it continuously deployed, and once you've done all of that, then you can finally write software, start writing some code, yeah. right? Yeah, and there's so many people I talk to like have a have a side project that they were so excited about, and then after you know 16 hours of doing this infra framework, they just like they didn't care anymore. They they had no passion left for whatever it was they were building. Yeah, and what's interesting, I think you hit on this at the very beginning, is a lot of these things which are now being considered boilerplate, right? Yeah. Were designed originally. So let's just pick on Kubernetes a bit, which yeah. I mean obviously you know we love it, great technology, but was designed by Google to help them manage planet scale clusters. Mm, right, right. Right. And you know, if you can run your entire infrastructure on three servers, maybe yeah. it's not solving the same set of problems. Yeah, or, or or one or less less than right, one. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I think one of the dating myself with the three servers. Yeah. here. <laughs> it used to be three. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I I'm sure that almost anyone starting to you know build a service today wouldn't even know how to get started with like acquiring three servers. Right. And like you know, putting them in a colo and like buying the parts off the internet and then like putting them together and putting them on a rack somewhere and then like doing some sort of installing an OS and yeah, or even I mean, I was, imagine I was even thinking you know th- even three instances because you want to be in three availability mm-hmm. zones, right? But right. now um, so quaint, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it's a, that would be half of all availability zones right. pretty much uh, at the time. You hear more and more, and I, I think reaction to this I, I hear more and more now on. Um, Serverless first, right? Right, okay, which yeah. is kind of this emerging kind of doctrine about let's try to make it serverless first, yeah. and then if we can't make it work there, then we'll we'll drop back to a you know a twenty four by seven running process that we have more kind of control and we can right. right size resources for. What's your just notion on serverless in general? Besides that, yes, it does in fact run on servers. We don't <laughs> need to go there, right? Right. I mean, I think that serverless as a as a concept and. Looking at broader than like you know, Lambda or Cloud Functions or whatever, I think is a is a wonderful idea. It's disappointing though. Like the the entire space around serverless is starting to have the the Kubernetesification problem again. It's like it started with well, you know, we just want to run a function in the cloud. Yeah, just a literally effectively like a cron job right. type function, right? right? A batch and, job, an actual. Function in the programming language sense. It's maybe it has to be JavaScript or whatever, but it you know, there's there's an input, there's an output. It's it's done, and it's a lovely concept. And there's just so much more that you need to do to actually run a thing. You need you need to monitor it. You need to scale it. And and you know, Lambda does some scaling, but like you know, it has a has a cold start problem and 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 all this other thing. And so now I'm sure you saw it reinvent. AWS brought out Lambda Layers. Layers, I think it's, yeah, it's called. yeah. I didn't even look at what it was. What it was called. I like. I'm, I'm done with the with the whole thing. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's already too much. When when we went to put some stuff in in Lambda as as a way of trying it out, it took like eight hours. Like it's it's not at all the simplicity that you are hoping for. It's yeah. I mean, it's it's huge complexity around a simple concept. Well, it's the kind of thing where I I feel like they often so just focus on the initial abstraction, which to your point was. A single function, whether it's like a webhook or a cron job kind of yeah. thing, but it's not even just that it's a pure function with like one input and some processing and and mm-hmm. something comes back, but it exists in isolation mm-hmm. just from like literally conceptually, what does it do? What right. does this one thing? Now I think as people are starting to try and build more complicated applications mm-hmm. out of it, I, 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 what I find is a fascinating challenge, especially with this infrastructure that's really 
or products that aren't really built for that at all mm-hmm. is um, okay. It's bad enough when we've gone all in on our Kubernetes microservices and we've crossed Dunbar's number of microservices, mm-hmm. and nobody in the org actually knows what all of them are or what they do. Right. Saying we're going to take those microservices, each of which do like I don't know five or six related things, mm-hmm. probably more in most in practice, and then break them into individual functions. Well, now I have like tens of thousands right. of things that are related somehow. Mm-hmm. And have like flows that go through them, right? And you've got a management problem, a version control problem, a continuous delivery problem, a testing problem. Like it's just, I think that the thing that Lambda and Serverless is trying to do is good. I not 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 a huge fan of how it ended up. Yeah, I mean, it seems like we're definitely clearly still. If you subscribe to like the the Gartner hype cycle mm-hmm. model, we're still clearly right. rocketing up. We haven't hit the trough of disillusionment yet. Right, right, just right. Some right. of the things you're hinting at. Yeah, I mean, I think people need to keep looking at this less idea. So the amount of accidental complexity that is in how we build software today is is crazy. And so, what, what are some doing, examples of that? I mean, so, you know, the very obvious one is is, is all the infrastructure stuff. You, you have to learn Kubernetes and Docker, and you have to you know, learn all that stuff. At the same time, you have to build your continuous delivery pipeline and your continuous integration and testing. You have all this tooling challenge, and you see the amount of companies that that that, that come through Heavybit yeah. and all the other companies in the space. That they're all providing one piece of the pie, and so we have fifty things that you need to consider before you even start writing any any software at all. Yeah, I've I've personally found the explosion of complexity in the development environment mm-hmm. to be a fascinating problem. That I mean, certainly most people aren't even talking about unless it's commiseration, right. uh, and certainly aren't solving yet. Whereas historically, back again, just using an example, if you fired up a Rails app, right, right, you had one application, one database, and uh, yeah, you could load up your local browser, and that dev environment yep. actually looked reasonably close to production. Yeah. Now, if you're using like a microservices or e- even more granular environment, the number of moving pieces you need right. on your laptop to effectively replicate production is is like not tractable, right? right? It's not that these things started from a bad place. It's like you know, there's extremely valid reasons for microservices and places that monoliths break down, especially with like scaling and deployment velocity. Yep. You don't necessarily want them all to be on the same thing. Some things need to be you know, extremely high reliability. Some things need to be redeployed at you know, dozens of times a day. So you do want to break those apart. You want to have some sort of boundary. But the end result, it's just it hasn't worked out particularly well. And and I think what you're saying about the trough of disillusionment is right. We're starting to see that steep decline. Well, it's something where we've we've made giant strides towards fixing problems in scaling production environments right. and how quickly we can like the velocity we can make changes at scale in, in large scale applications. Yeah. But the trade off because there's you know no free lunch, no silver bullets is uh, uh, we dramatically increase the complexity of the development environment. Right. Right. I mean, this is where I should tell you about my, my new company, Darkline, yeah, and how yeah, it yeah. solves all these problems. <laughs> but actually, but before we do, I want, I want to get to that later. Your original question was, you know, someone is starting something today, they're, they're right. doing something small. I talk to a lot of those companies, and the advice I give them is see if you can build it without software. Even if you're an engineer, see if you can throw it together with Zapier and Google Sheets, um, right. or Airtable, or product management techniques like Wizard of Oz, you know, have someone, have someone do it by email or by a form, and you know, there's an actual human behind it. A human, see if yeah. you can get validation before you start to build the actual product because if you build the product first you're going to spend 6 months doing that and once you've spent that 6 months doing that you're going to find that it's wrong in some way that that you don't know yet 
Whereas if you spent a week doing that in a completely slipshod, haphazard way, you would only have spent a week to learn the lessons and you know to to move in the direction of of what you actually needed to build. Yeah, and it's great advice. I mean, it harkens back to some of the lean, you know, startup mm. stuff that was absolutely all the rage. So say you do that, right? You've got your and especially it is kind of interesting, like tools like Airtable. There are like dramatically improved tools that you can yep. plug together and actually get. Uh, you know, they won't scale and you said there'll have to be humans polishing edges and, yep. and handling things, but you, you can actually get working systems with you know just plugging these together. Right. And and the needs of, of an early customer, like how reliable or polished you need to be for that first customer is often like two orders of magnitude lower than people expect. Right. And because often what you'll be doing is you'll be paying that kind of hidden cost with with humans, yep. right? Like yep. Whether it's your uh, quote, you know, not sales engineers because you won't have any of them officially, mm-hmm. but you as the founder acting with your sales engineer, your customer success hat on, yeah, you'll be talking directly to those people, finding out what's wrong, and literally like pulling them through those problems yep. and manually fixing things on the back. Yeah, absolutely. How do you decide when you get to the next stage? Like, what's the kind of trigger that says, "Oh, okay, I'm onto something here. Mm-hmm. I should go to the next stage." What's that next stage look like? How do you you formalize those things? I mean, personally, at that stage, you know, one to two people, or maybe maybe one to five people, the process that I favor is like fix whatever's on fire. And if the thing that is on fire is actually just this whole thing is not working, we need a rewrite, and it's very likely that you're going to hit that if if you literally build it with with. If you committed to the yeah, if you if you're really committed to uh, minimal right. But what, what what you'll probably do is you'll probably the thing that is that works least, you know, will be rewritten. On something that's a little more reliable, maybe you'll put it on serverless or something like that, or maybe like you know, honestly, a Rails app is is probably the right thing, or or a monolith at least is the right thing as you start to rebuild, and then you can turn that relatively quickly into into something that that scales for your first, you know, hundred thousand customers if you're you know B two B SaaS or something. Different constraints if you're building like a high scale mobile app or something like that, or or a or a consumer app of some kind. But certainly B two B, you can get away with that. Especially like a you know traditional B two B app. It's effectively like a database with some business logic in front right, of it. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always think those are. It's kind of fascinating the the, the amount of raw compute mm-hmm. you can get today in in very small packages. Right. It's yeah, not almost never easy to scale things, but certainly yeah. a lot less challenging than it used to be. Um, I, and I think one of the reasons that we end up with a lot of this complexity is because so much of the business value is now provided on the front end. Yeah, which is kind of. I mean, do you think that's part of why the um, uh, the rise of uh, of Jamstack, right, JavaScript mm-hmm. APIs and markup, where mm-hmm. we're moving towards this notion in a lot of places of fully formed front end applications served down statically. Mm-hmm. Through CDNs that then connect back to uh, GraphQL APIs, right, right? Exactly. Yeah. With headless backend services, um, yeah. do you think that's part of the reason that that's happened? That because the value is really focusing or pooling in the front end now? Yeah, I, I I think that we solved a lot of what you can do on the back end and made it you know at least a little bit easier conceptually, and so now the the great challenge is, is to architect these really well-performing, I just want to say good, front-end apps. Yeah, so your kind of newest project gig, mm-hmm. Dark, is is Dark. sort of an extreme example of this, right? Yes, or? yes. So Dark is an editor, a programming language, and an infrastructure compiler in one. And our goal 
is removing all of the stuff that we've been talking about, making it super, super simple to build backends in the cloud. Yeah, and so effectively, I mean, you've got your own language, right? Like it's, it's, it's our own language. It's a it's a language that's natively defined with a notion of production infrastructure right. inside the language itself, right? Yeah. And things the, like the, there's a bunch of different ways that we describe it, but one of them is is a language designed for continuous delivery. Right. So it's like built into the language is the concept of deployment of uh, how does this get in the cloud? How does it scale? It's holistic, basically. Right, right, and it's uh, I mean, including things uh, uh, so far as like uh, data. I yep. say database, but maybe but data at rest, right? And yes, yes, the, persistent it's, it's data storage. Right, right, it's it's right in the language. It's kind of blurring all those lines, those kind of hard lines that a novice user, right, would have to. Okay, well, I know how to write some a script that I can run the command line. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Well, now I have to figure out how to run a database. Right. And now I need to know how to write SQL, and now I need to know how to be able to do monitoring on my database, and and that's. We're only in the database side of it. Like, you know, add that for the for the compute side of it, for the queues side of it. You know, if if you want to have a service, do you need to be an expert in running Kafka? If you want to do analytics, do you need to be an expert in running Cassandra. Right, right. And you have these constructs, so like message queues and other yep. abstractions yep. in the platform and language itself, which yeah, I think is is really interesting, especially the first time we talked about it. You know, fundamentally one outcome. Is to dramatically increase potentially the number of people who can write production code. Yes. So the way that we target it is by trying to remove all the bullshit that you have to do to write code. And I'm aiming it at you and me and and like you know, coders. But there's so many people who are on the periphery of coding who who right are on the lear- precipice, right? Like right. they're almost they're, there. They're learning to code, or they they are in a coding adjacent job, like a designer or a PM or something like that. And where if we made it easier by removing all the bullshit, like the stuff that we were talking about with serverless earlier and, and with Lambda, if we just like removed a lot of that complexity, they would be able to do it. Right. So it's it's not it's not our our first port of call. But it's definitely something that we're thinking about. It's an interesting side effect. You know, we definitely subscribe here, and I firmly believe that as much as is being done, and not enough, but as much as is being done to expand the access to people who can become developers mm-hmm. if they're if they're interested, that the appetite or the need for them, I think, is will be almost impossible to fill as software just wends its way through every single part of every industry. Absolutely, um, yeah. and it's it, you know, software is the kind of thing as you know you can. You can always make it more complex, right? right, right so right. E- even if everybody can hire them, and so I think things that could dramatically increase the number of developers in the world mm-hmm. um, stand to kind of like dramatically increase what gets done. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. So, and and if you look at the number of people who could be developers or who could build software, and you think, are they going to go through the process of learning Kubernetes? Or of learning serverless, or of you know, writing Docker files, or or any of those sort of things. When all they really want to do is like take data from one API, do some compute on it, and write data to another API. Right. And I think what's always an interesting indicator in these kind of things. I mean, there's a few other. I, I know doing different things, but like semi-related. So there's a, a glitches. I think yeah. really popular, kind of in the Glitch same area. Lovely. There's a Repl. Replit, Replit, yeah, um, and there, there may be others. There, there, there's a ton. There's so many, <laughs> right? Yeah. But, uh, but it's always a good sign, right? Like yeah. it's it's a good sign. I think the fact that there is a signal that there's something happening here, that there's multiple these companies coming together. What do you think was the quote the space, right? Like what do we, what do we call this kind of solution? 
It's certainly serverless. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it's a thing that, that that doesn't have a name yet. The only name I've heard anyone apply to it, uh, I showed uh, Jess Roselli what we were doing, and she called it deployless. Deployless. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's. I'm not sure if we love it yet, but it's it certainly applies yeah, yeah, to, to it's what in the we're running. doing. And all, I mean, it, it also applies to to glitch and repelit and. Right, right. Again, the, the notion that you're kind of always working on production code. I mean, right, there's like right. gates and versioning everything, yeah. but there's not this distinct notion of like, okay, my code is finished in dev and the pull requests are reviewed and now we're going to deploy. Right. right. Which, the, the, the place that we started with Dark is we made a list of all the accidental complexity that we want to remove and one broad category was deployment. If you want deployment to be really fast, you want to be able to get stuff out to your customers really fast. Well, the fastest that you can do it is zero. Like just completely removed. And so it becomes, what does it look like to build software if there is zero second deploy. Off the top of your head, like what are the heavy hitters on that list of accidental complexity? The heavy hitters are our infrastructure, deploys using APIs, and then just the, the software development process itself, everything from like syntax errors to GitHub. Got it, got it. So so things like actual code versioning and, and yep, yep. pull requests are native as well. Yeah. And so all, all of those things for for Dark are defined around this idea of of deployless or, or like continuous delivery. So as an example, every database table, every function, and every type is versioned. So you never go through the process of oh I make a change over here and it just like takes out something over there. So it's it's designed for you know start to finish around this idea of you're going to make changes and then you're going to like carefully put them out route by route or group by group, use feature flags, uh, etc. Yeah, it's it's amazing that especially I guess building on now you know going on twenty years of kind of best practices mm-hmm. of what it means to deploy a you know a web based application whether it's access from a mobile or a browser right. or whatever, and you know making those things native I think <laughs> potentially very interesting right I mean even like you said even just feature flagging right mm-hmm. like wiring that up I mean certainly you know companies like Edith and LaunchDarkly have made this dramatically easier than when we had to literally get Zookeeper and yeah, a yeah. bunch of other things and paste it together. So are you seeing? I know, I know it's super early. Are you seeing like production applications? That's always a question with new technologies. Like, oh, this is great for side projects, but like yeah. people run their business on it. So at, at the moment, we have two people running their business on it. Excellent. Yeah, we're, we're still nowhere nowhere near launch. There's so much to do still, but we needed to validate our our early hypotheses of can people write software this way, and the results that you get from Dark. It's not even the things that we've taken away that they care the most about. It's now that we have all this stuff in the same place, the new things that we can do, like the introspection that we allow you to have into your application, those are the sort of things that, that I think are going to redefine how software development ends up working. Yeah, and just from an implementation perspective, which you know, mm-hmm. a lot, we're a very relatively technical audience, I think is always interesting. So first of all, I guess you're, you're learning a lot about programming language theory. and uh, <laughs> well, Yeah, so I, I, I kind of have a PhD in that. Oh, not well. I'm still learning some, but yeah, uh, yeah. Oh no, I, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm learning a lot. So you're actually going back to your roots. Uh, yeah, I mean, the when I started Circle, it was very much like, what's the closest SaaS company that I could make that's like, you know, roughly compilers as a service. And um, continuous integration. Continuous integration. <laughs> I, can, yeah. I, I could see that. Yeah, I, I mean, static analysis is is not a massively good market, which is what I did my PhD in. But this one is like so much closer. It's like actual programming language tools and. Yeah, yeah, and then um, what are the kind of atoms that you're building this platform around? Like, are you able to leverage things like, you know, Lambda or Azure I mean, Functions? Yeah, or so, so I mean, we're building it on Kubernetes. 
Okay. And it's it's running on GKE and and you know Postgres and Google Cloud and there's this queues. I guess it's kind of interesting then. So uh, I, I generally don't like to date these things, but mm-hmm. uh, it was, you know, reInvent was just recent, which is the annual. You know, Amazon rolls out a hundred new things, and it, even now, especially, it's like you see Google and Microsoft responding with their announcements based right, on right. what's come out. You know, we mentioned layers earlier. Anything else jump out at you this year in particular? I mean, just yet again, they have launched many more things, and yeah, that sounds good, right? People have launched new new services, new products that you can yeah, use, shipping but, sounds good, right? Yeah, but like. It's just more complexity. The suite of tools in AWS that you need to make cloud software has increased yet again, and it will increase at next year's reInvent and the following year's reInvent. And do do they do a six month thing in between? Uh, I think there's especially these days. I think there's so much that things come. Well, they do the um 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 the small. I forget the name of them per city. Right, right. They have, right, a, they right. have a, a circuit of cities that go through and do right. the uh, yeah the cloud days. So yeah, every every you know six months or so, there's another. 12 to 15 services that now you need to learn in order to be able to leverage AWS to build your startup. And that sounds like hell. Yeah, it's funny. I was, I was talking with a previous guest who focuses on um, cloud and, and Amazon in particular. And um, I, you know, I asked him the same thing. I'll ask you. I've always found fascinating that uh, you know we're like going on 10 to 15 years into AWS, and, mm-hmm. and which has kind of changed the whole industry yeah. uh, for the better. And I think a lot of people would ref- you know, look at the way they're organized as you know, they, it's two pizza teams, but as these like very, very independent units mm-hmm. um, that can prove a service. Right. And the barrier, I think, to getting the service out into production is, is, I think, some people would find shockingly low for a company that large. Yeah. yeah. But then the question I always come back to: I do wonder if at some point, like, it starts to kind of collapse under its own weight because mm-hmm. at some level, there's no like. Directive for these things to play together in a sensible way, right, right, or there to be any kind of rhyme or reason other than the. I mean, now I think they're tiering. I think this is something new where oh, they're right. actually creating like they're trying to help you by saying, "Oh, here's the the fundamental tier of AWS services, uh-huh. and here's your like ARVR tier. You probably care about these things. If you're over there, like yeah. I guess that's um, a good idea. Some cataloging, right? Right, 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 um, right. It does feel like it's. Dramatically more intimidating to sit down, mm-hmm. create an AWS account, and get things going. Right. So, so we built on Google Cloud, and one of the reasons for it is that it really seems a lot more polished, and the the tools that they everything works together, and it works together pretty well. Yeah, it seems like when those things come out, there's one thing you can say for for Google is there's it seems always very intentional, right, right about how those things play together. Yeah. And um, I was actually going to ask what you thought of the other players, and yeah. or how important I mean, you think this so is. So Google is, you know, either third or fourth in the cloud market, but I think it's it's by far the best product. And the downside of Google is they have less services, but paradoxically, less services is actually better. I don't want to be, you know, a- every new technology of any kind that I add to my app is, is more complexity that I need to reason about, more things that can go down. Is more risk basically. There's a cognitive uh, overhead. Yeah, right? so less tools that are better thought out and that cost less is a much better situation to to be building on. Yeah, maybe there's some answer there. But the other question I always like to ask in, uh, entrepreneurs, especially those building infrastructure of some, some kind, mm-hmm. and especially those because the one thing I, I always talk to entrepreneurs about, and you know, in terms of the 
the million dollar question, right? Like, how do you compete with Amazon? Which I know, especially now, more in the venture industry, more and more people yeah. that's that's like literally on their standard sheet. How are you going to compete when Amazon announces this is one of their twenty five services next year? And I always yeah. tell people, think very, very carefully if you're going to compete with Amazon on compute. Yeah, yeah. And that's something you're charging headlong into. So how, yeah, yeah how do you think specifically about how an, an entrepreneur should think about competing with with not just Amazon, but any of the cloud providers mm-hmm. rolling out? A version of the, what they do. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. One of the Amazon has been working on for for, for several years on on a thing that is like what we do. Uh, I don't know what what it's what it's going to look like, but I know I know that they're working on it. And the solution that I tend to find is that things that Amazon invents end up being very good. Things that Amazon copies ends up not being very good at all. Right. So I would advise companies who are building a new thing to not worry about Amazon copying them. If you're building an open source situation that Amazon can just host, that's that's something entirely different. Right, right. Um, but if you're if you're building a new SaaS, yes, Amazon will compete. Like and, and it's it's when, not if, will they compete. If if that SaaS is in the dev tool space, when is when you've become successful enough that they think the market is there? Yeah, and and they, they'll take a junior PM and they'll they'll have them clone your thing, and they'll probably make more money off that than you do. But it's it's not going to materially impact your service. Yeah, I, I usually I, I talk to people, and there was a period of time I think when they first started these, like, hey, every year we're going to roll out our ten favorite services cloned. Where yeah. I think maybe for about eighteen to twenty four months there was some real fear. But I think yeah, if you've been paying attention, I always call it the it's the eighty twenty rule, where they, though I say usually they they launch the twenty percent mm-hmm. solution, right? Yes, um, which honestly is you know if you've got five million customers or whatever the uh, you know the attach rate you need yeah. to generate meaningful revenue is really really low. Yeah, and a lot of people who need a service, they only need a small amount of it. They don't need all the bells and whistles. They just need you know the thing that that puts data into a queue and takes it at the other end. You know, as an example. And yeah, a twenty percent service solves that. Yeah, and I think it's interesting from a competitive perspective. On the one hand, it, like you, you have to push further than you used to have to, mm-hmm. like ten years ago, right? Like, I mean, what you'd have to do, you know, my my product competed with CloudWatch. I'm sure they have some terrible copy of what Circle does, mm-hmm. and probably what we were doing in the early early days, you know, that we were able to get traction with would be much harder now. So you you have to build better product, but I think it's interesting is it it also raises the barrier to entry for competitors, mm-hmm. yeah, right. And so if you're able to get past that, especially if you're the one driving the market, I think mm-hmm. is you know as long as you keep moving forward. Yeah, I mean when I look at at what companies are going to be successful uh, in competing with Amazon, I very much look at it as are these putting up a product that Amazon cannot do for some reason, so uh, or will not do, or, or, or will not do. Yeah. So I mean, Re- Replicated is a very good example of this. So so Replicated is building an on-prem installation of your SaaS thing, and it's like that's that's just not Amazon's world at all. It's it's doing some on-prem for people who really want to be in the cloud but want to have you know an Amazon-looking thing on-prem, and then with, with Dark, what we're doing is we're we're subsuming the entire thing, we're making it so that you don't. Have this massive complexity, and what Amazon thrives on is adding more services into the pile, more services into the, into that complexity, and so they're not like building a holistic product that solves the need for AWS is is not a thing that sits in their strategic vision. Yeah, I mean, I think even is fundamentally in their DNA, at least from what I've seen to date. I mean, the what it would take to be required to get all these services to work together. Yeah, which to their you know in their defense, like. All these services have their own individual drivers and yep. numbers they're trying to hit. Of course, and, yep. uh, 
yeah, whereas you have the uh, quote unquote luxury mm-hmm. of being able to focus on this one one problem. Right. Um, the, the other thing that goes with that is that it does drive up the cost of, of what it takes to, to be able to innovate. So oh, we're yeah. we're building this product, but this is we've been at it a year and a bit now. We raised three and a half million to be able to do it. And being able to raise the money to do that pre-product is is not a thing that is common, but is a thing that may have to be common to be able to compete in this space. Yeah, I, I do think in terms of downsides, that's a, a an interesting observation because as impressed as people are with uh, the large cloud providers' ability to innovate and and roll out new things, I do think on a more somber note, like they'll never innovate and and disrupt at the scale that you know millions of individual entrepreneurs right. will. And the fact that the kind of ability of those people to innovate and get a foothold, because yeah. it's never, again, if you look at every successful company, what they sold in their first year mm-hmm. is a, a shadow of what they end up ultimately building. Yeah. And uh, when that ability to kind of survive on that initial product is made dramatically harder because mm-hmm. some, you know, Levanthian is standing in your way, I think that does it's, at some level slow down overall mm-hmm. progress. So. Well, the, the other way to deal with that is to build less and to build smaller things, smaller companies. And the, the, there's a little bit of a movement towards bootstrap startups and you know, even investors investing in bootstrap startups, if you look at like IndieVC. Mm-hmm. So if you build something that is only ever going to make $10 million a year, Amazon isn't interested in that. And if, if they can't, you know, if it's something super niche, but like there is an audience of people, that you can get to that that Amazon isn't going to. You can build a super protectable product there, and you know the moat is is your lack of potential. <laughs> right, right, yes. As long as you're going after an addressable market with a cost structure that that market can support. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I think I think understanding your market and how big it is, and then how you should build your company to attack it, yeah. and what it means, is such a critical thing that a lot yeah. of Especially first-time entrepreneurs don't don't look at too hard. Yeah. I I spend a lot of time thinking about business models. It's it's like a hobby. And when I was looking at, at what what to do next after Circle, one one of the options was obviously dark, and one of the options was like build a nice small SaaS. And the goal of the nice small SaaS was that it wasn't going to be competed against by some VC-backed company or a Leviathan or something like that. And you can get very good. Very quickly at judging, you know, is an idea something that that is going to be VC investable or is going to be Amazon investable? And if not, you know, that might be your your nice, you know, one to ten person business. Yeah, yeah. So one thing, and I'd probably finish up, but I you, you did mention earlier, so I want to pull on that thread a little bit in this discussion. The open source licenses mm-hmm. and something that's becoming increasingly uh, more contentious, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this notion that these cloud providers will cherry pick the like most popular open source, right. and I think actually specifically the most popular stateful open source mm. projects? Yeah, that's interesting. And actually offer managed, hosted black box versions of them. Yeah. And whereas historically those companies, and if you look at, uh, I mean, just some examples. There's Elastic Search yep. uh, and Elastic. There's Redis. Mm-hmm. More recently, Kafka just, yep, just last week that. was announced. And then Confluent, the company yep. behind that offering a managed service, uh, a heavy bit company. It's slightly different. We have Citus, who offers yep. a, a hosted PostgreSQL DB, which 
is actually kind of a very interesting in-between, mm. different than Aurora and RDS, so stands right, where it, it is. it has its own special sauce for, for um, sharding and scaling. Exactly, yeah, which, which kind of exceeds the native capabilities. So that's actually one example of like how do you navigate that. But yeah. what, what are your thoughts on, because I mean, you're seeing things where people literally for the first time in 20 years are trying to invent new open source licenses, yeah. open source licenses to circumvent this. So I, I think there's a general thread in, in our times about you know, the tragedy of the commons of open source, that, that you know, so many people are interested in it that everyone else can exploit it. And I'm actually not sure that there's a solution. And the reason being that so many people are making open source because it provides such value to them, and the value isn't necessarily monetary, but it's, you know, it's a, in some cases it's a sense of pride, in some cases it's, it makes it much easier to get jobs, in some cases it's just a thing you want to do with your life. But under that world, you know, we're just going to keep scaling up the amount of open source there is out there. And you know, all of these challenges are not going to stop that from happening. So the question is, at the other end, can it be protected or prevented? Because no, no one's going to stop. And you know, the things was it the common mark that they that that's yeah Redis, that uh, Redis uh, um, I think was Redis working. Labs was it came up with it exactly and they were working with with Fossa which is the yep. yeah and I think Mongo is was potentially looking into that as well yeah uh, yeah we're we're concerned about the same thing like if we open source what we do which we're probably not going to do for for other business reasons. Notably, that no one wants to install Kubernetes as the first step of their <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, we've so established. I, I, uh, yeah, uh, if, if we're, we're trying to make something that's like really easy to set up, so step one, Kubernetes. No, but you know, no one wants Amazon to run the service or the product that that they spent a decade building. So yeah, I think people are going to make licenses, and half the open source world is going to hate it, and it's just going to continue to be. Yeah, it's interesting. There's already, I mean, there's this play out. I guess about ten years ago with with, with AGPL, mm-hmm. right, which was focused at this kind right. of an initial threat of uh, people taking open source and then mon- you know using it to build SaaS platforms yeah. that they were monetizing. And there's similarly like GPL three and right, but then those all fell short of or didn't address this notion like oh well we're not going to build a service out of it we're just literally going to run it for you and manage it for you. Yeah. At the moment, people are saying that those are not free licenses. So the the, right. the the new ones are not free licenses. The things that prevent you from you know, yeah. r- running it as a cloud service. But I wonder if, essentially, an anti-mooching provision. I mean, essentially, that's what the GPL was in the, in the first place. Originally. It had you know an anti-mooching provision, and I wonder if if an anti-mooching from cloud providers is going to be the next step that people accept as being okay. Yeah, I, I honestly, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I just especially because it's interesting in parallel to this. I mean, your your point about the amount of open source exploding. I mean, I think increasingly, the path to delivering software, at least outside of niches, like mm-hmm. not in like you know real time embedded OSs or whatever. I think there are still niches where proprietary software, where you purchase it and you literally get some binaries that you can't mm-hmm. look at the source for, yeah, and you yeah. run them and trust them. Is shrinking, and I personally believe at least we're moving towards a place where there's going to be really two kinds of software. There's going to mm-hmm. be managed software, whether mm-hmm. it's like APIs like Stripe uh, or things like Dark, where you're, mm-hmm. where you're hosting, managing all the bits, and you're the trade-off for complexity. I don't need to look at the bits because you're signing up to own them. Mm-hmm. Anything, and I remember building my company. We kind of quickly got to a point where, like, if it's being installed on servers that yeah. I am responsible for. It's open source, like mm-hmm. from the CPU up, the OS, mm-hmm. the libraries, the applications. Like 
it has to be open source if it's running in production because mm-hmm. I'm not going to be dependent on you in the middle of the night. Right, if you're running it yourself. Yeah, and, and especially at scale. And I mean, we saw this. I mean, things we were running the Cassandra database where we absolutely were, I mean, very, very few cases, but there were places where we would have to make changes to the mm-hmm. core database itself yep. to support the thing we were doing. And oftentimes those would make it upstream, but we weren't dependent on a vendor a vendor's roadmap to line up with our priorities, yeah, which yeah. they almost certainly wouldn't because we were doing something very kind of esoteric mm-hmm. with it. It's funny because we, we we do the exact same thing, but dark is is sort of the the opposite, and I think that's going to be true of any providers. You know, the providers are you know th- their value is that you don't have to or get to look under the hood. So if you're using Firebase or Stripe or whatever, things that you don't have to manage operationally, then those are the things that that, that sort of you get an exemption in my view. Oh, exactly. Yeah, there's a whole half, which I think, right, it right. fit exactly that I mean, model. And thing in AWS. Yeah. I mean, I think you're certainly right. I think it would try to be solved with licenses. And I'm kind of more hopeful that can happen there because the alternative is just that there will be more bits held back in a proprietary fashion. Yep. And you'll see more companies where there's a core, useful, open source thing to get over that hurdle. But then they will be holding more and more back because they'll right. need enough of a wedge against and the large that, providers. That, that the companies have. Traditionally held back have, have turned out not to be a big thing. So, for example, the the trademark stuff. Open source companies have owned the trademark, and so uh, if someone yes. else can't sell something which calls itself. Uh, Firefox is the one that I'm thinking of. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> not to pick. It's just interesting. I just saw it because you know Amazon has some small on-prem thing as of mm-hmm. last week, and so now it's you can literally quote unquote install Amazon RDS on-prem. Hmm. Right, which is MySQL or Postgres, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> they have their proprietary bits, but they've literally it's come like full circle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of High Leverage. If you'd like to suggest a guest or topic, let us know on Twitter at HeavyBit. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit HeavyBit.com to check out our library. It's an amazing resource for insights on developer sales, marketing, product, and general management from leaders in our community.